Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 24, our final episode for this season. I'm your host, Otis Jari, and in this episode, I'll be performing three tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Seth Paul, about perilous plagues, malevolent memories, and mystical murders. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail, so lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark is proudly brought to you by BetterHelp. I'm used to being a peaceful, quiet man with a taste for the simpler things in life. I loved my calm and serenity. Every day started out the same way. I'd wake up, brush my teeth, feed my cats, have some breakfast, plan out dinner and sit down to appease the voices in my head by performing some stories. With a few minor exceptions, that's how most of my days went. 
wake up, brush my teeth, feed my cat, have some breakfast, plan out dinner and sit down to appease the voices in my head by performing some stories. Wake up, brush my teeth, feed my cats, have some breakfast, plan out dinner, and sit down to appease the voices in my head by performing some stories. Day after day, the same thing. Until all of the quiet suddenly became too damn loud. I'm not sure if any of you have ever experienced this, but after a while, all the things I used to love to look forward to took on darker connotations. The things I loved to do became the things I had to do. The mundane task of my former contented lifestyle seemed to turn against me, squeezing the air out of my very lungs. It turned me into a person I didn't know. It was at that point that I was forced to come to terms with something my mind had been hinting at all along, that there was a problem. Shrugging it off and fake-it-till-you-make-it mechanisms weren't working anymore. It felt like I was quickly losing touch with my inner self, and I needed to do something about it. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that's convenient, professional, and affordable. And the best part is you can take control of your mental health right from your very own home. That's way better than an awkward waiting room with all those patients playing the wonder-what's-wrong-with-him game. Come on, don't tell me you haven't done the same. BetterHelp is licensed therapists ready to talk with you within 48 hours of signing up to help you with whatever may be interfering with your happiness or preventing you from being your best you. All it takes is one visit to the website, a few moments of your time for a swift and thorough assessment. It's really that easy. Please note that BetterHelp is not a crisis line, and it's not self-help. It's professional counseling done online. It's more affordable than traditional online therapy, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp counselors specialize in depression, anger, grief, anxiety, relationship issues, Sleeping, trauma, LGBT matters, family concerns, or self-esteem, among many others. They're available worldwide, even areas where mental health services may not be available. So what are you waiting for? Maybe now's the time to make that change. It's time to think about breaking that routine of yours and popping online to check them out. It means a lot to me that you're happy, and everyone deserves to live their best life. And if that wasn't enough incentive for you, how about we sweeten the pot a little? As the scary stories told in the dark fan and listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com horror. So join me in my journey. Sign up and join the network of over 1 million people who are actively taking charge of their mental wellness and future. Again, that's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash horror. Thanks for your support of this program and of the sponsors that make it possible. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, 
and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Let's go far back in time to an age of chivalry, adventure, and a lack of medical insight. When a small village sees a visitor stumble and fall well short of their entrance... A former soldier who's seen a plague victim once or twice takes it upon his shoulders to help his village stay clear of the dreaded disease. But as we shall see in this first tale from Seth Paul, maybe he has other motives for his caution. Without further ado, I present to you The Poor Shepherd. It was a small village, a hamlet, far off the beaten path of the major towns and cities, but the people were hardworking and friendly. They never required walls because there was nothing to guard against. They'd nothing of value, there was no military strategy to conquering them, and they never bothered anyone. That all changed when the soldier came stumbling down the road. He wore colors of an unfamiliar army, emerging for an early morning mist, holding sword and shield, stumbling on the road as if drunk. Harold first sighted him, a farmer tilling his fields, who ran, calling for aid. The doctor wasn't available, having not arrived in over a month, so a handful of young lads went out with food and drink to help what was believed to be a wounded or weary man. They found the soldier face down in the mud, unmoving and rolling him over. Finally, they discovered the real truth, the sores, the decay of fingers. It was the plague, and no doctor was needed to tell them about that. They'd heard tell of the plague, but when they heard it from travelers, they'd been isolated enough that they never needed to protect themselves from its effects. Instead, they took to prayer, worked their farms, and took the medicines prescribed by Dr. Jalid when he came. Thus, when the great death finally appeared to recede, they remained healthy. Jalid was a kindly soul to those he spoke to, but he didn't work without price, and as one could only carry so much grain and dried meat with him at any one time, he could only offer his services every so often. Now, when he was truly needed, he was not there. The shouts of the plague from the young men roused the villagers to attention, but the first to heed the call was Matthias Gruner. Matthias was one of the few from the village who had traveled beyond its borders. He wished to thank the Teutonic Knights and march with Christendom. He returned only a few years later, a scar over his eye and his foot a ragged stump. Though in body he was young, in spirit he was greatly aged, and of his journeys he said very little, except that his distaste of the outside world was great. As the shouts of plague grew louder and closer, Matthias jabbed his walking stick into the muddy ground. Come no closer! 
At this, the young men stopped in their tracks, stunned, looking at each other. No longer addressing the young men, he turned to the other gathered villagers. It's too late for them. They've breathed the air near the body. They cannot return to us, not ever. A mother, overcome with grief, reached out to her son, but Matthias held her back. You do not know what this pestilence brings. I saw its ravages, but once, and from a clear distance, I will not allow it to come here. He turned again to the young men. Go. You are now dead to our village. Seek treatment elsewhere if you can, but no, you cannot return. This place will not be driven mad with plague. And so the young men set out on their own. They left the body of the soldier as they headed away. Matthias turned to the other men in the village. The body shall remain where it lies. There was an outcry, a sacrilege to leave a body, let alone a soldier, to rot in the mud. Matthias shook his head. He would not be the first to do so. And whatever this man may have done, the love of the Lord left him long ago. He shall remain where he is to spread his filth no further. Days passed with no further incident, though the stench of the corpse began to roll over the village. Villagers wondered if the miasma coming from it would make them ill. But Matthias told them they were safer at a distance than they'd be approaching it. So, not wishing to doubt his words, they did so. Then another traveler appeared. This one, seeing the body on the road, recoiled but kept on his reproach. Harold, the one who had seen the soldier originally, but had been thankful not to have been among those who went to provide aid, was the first to see him as well, and went to rouse Matthias for his advice. Matthias went to the edge of the road, armed with their pitchforks and reapers, with several others. Upon seeing them, the man stopped well short of the village and called out, Hello, and well met. I come from the north for aid. We need strong men to help us with an outbreak of plague to remove the bodies, as well as women to help wash and tend to others. Matthias held out his staff. No one here can provide aid, nor can they be sent off to die for others, so our people shall remain here. But we are in desperate need. We've lost many of the able-bodied to the disease, but Dr. Jalid believes he has ways to combat it if we only had a few more that could provide aid while he gathers the necessary items. The plague is not as strong as it was those many years ago, he thinks, and with some help we could keep it from spreading further. I know of a perfectly fine way to keep it from spreading, and it involves you turning around and leaving our village alone. Who knows what damage you have may inflicted already? The man tried to plead his case further, but Matthias would hear nothing of it. When he finally left and his head disappeared beyond the horizon, Matthias turned to the others. This will not be the last incursion. We must gather our supplies and build a wall around the village. We must not let anyone through from any direction. The construction of the wall began. Despite the few available, Matthias insisted it be grand large enough to surround all the homes, with a gate only available to allow passage to the fields for farming. With fewer hands available to till, several fields grew fallow, 
and some mutterings doing so would cause a lack of food for the coming year. When these mutterings reached Matthias, he remained adamant. I have seen the ravages of the plague. We can always recover lost grain or attempt to regrow it elsewhere. But once this rot takes hold, there is nothing we can do to stop it. So be thankful I'm here and have seen these things, for you are unaware of the costs. The wall, a solid barrier made of strong tree trunks, 15 feet high, lashed together with rope and buried deep in the ground, would probably not have held off the ancient Roman armies, but would stop a mercenary force in its tracks. Perhaps it was providence that no travelers came until they had left to complete the heavy wooden gate, and even then, it was one they recognized. The horse rode up carrying the aged but still strong body of Dr. Jalad, who looked upon them at the recent fortifications in surprise and disgust at the body still decomposing up the road some ways. Why do you put up walls, my friends? It is I, the doctor, here to speak with you. I bring good news. Many came forward to hear Dr. Jalad's news, but Matthias waved for silence and pushed forward, right to the front edge of the door. What news, doctor? The doctor held out his hands in a gesture of peace. Am I no longer welcome among you? Plague, doctor. What of the plague? But that is the news I bring. I understand that you had refused to give help, and believe me, I know that there were risks involved, but the people have recovered. Only a few have died, and while it is regrettable, it is far less than we believed. They do not carry the dreaded buboes. Thus, I do not think this is the same plague that caused the great death among us those years ago. Therefore, I invite you, please tear down these walls and rejoice, as your fears are no more. As the doctor came to offer his hand, Matthias pulled his own away. Why does a friend of all these years come bearing these lies? I have seen the plague. There is no cure. Those who catch all die or suffer grievously and wish they had, forever disfigured and wretched. And why would you invite us to tear down these walls? How much of the disease do you carry, doctor? Dr. Jalad frowned but held out his arm and spun in a slow circle. Do you see any evidence of it on me? I tell you it is gone, and you may come and go freely once more. A clamor of those behind Matthias rose, eager to believe the dread disease was indeed gone, and that the walls so recently built would have no need after all. Matthias heard it and slammed his walking stick against the wood, making a thunderous rattle that silenced the people. Charlatan! Matthias pointed his walking stick at the doctor, threateningly, steady despite having only the balance of one foot. You think your clever words can deceive us? I do not know how you hide it so well, but there is a sickness within you, perhaps even the sickness of the devil himself. The devil does not cure those who pray, Matthias. Why do you speak so harshly to me? Because we can only fend for ourselves. Only we can keep the sickness at bay without your help. Dr. Gillad frowned, and though some people began to object, 
None wished to challenge the authority of Matthias. After all, it was his wisdom that had kept them safe so far, and if they could not trust him, who could they trust indeed? Dr. Jalad then mounted his horse, looking back sadly, and rode off. After that, he was never seen again. With the gate constructed and put in place, the mood of the village changed, growing somber, desolate. There were no walkways to patrol the top of the fence, not even a small slit in the door to see through. There was no glimpse of the outside world except for when the gate was open and the fields were being worked. Music was heard less often, storytelling even less than that. However, Matthias seemed to be the only one unaffected, remaining his stern, somewhat distant, but authoritative self. We're safe from it in here. It cannot affect us here. Only horror and madness lie out there. There were times when the people couldn't tell if Matthias spoke of the plague or the world beyond their borders. One morning, one of the villagers awoke to find one of their children had gone missing. The gate had been shut and there was no visible damage to the wall. The village was searched heavily, but no one could find anything until the granary was examined. Bags were pulled aside from the back wall, revealing that holes had been made in the wood from rats. A hole big enough for a child to pass through had been weakened by the chewing and then forced the rest of the way by the child's hands. Matthias called for the gate to open. He exited on his own, limping his way into the fields. Many looked through to see him approaching a spot a little way north where the missing child was playing in a field. The stench of the fallen soldier had long passed, leaving only his skeletal remains, but the child played nowhere near him. Matthias went into the field and grabbed the child, who giggled and laughed, and asked only that Uncle Matthias join him out there. The watchers fell aghast when Matthias threw the child to the dirt. He brought his walking stick down over and over again. The horrible crack and the twitching legs sickened all who dared to watch. When Matthias finished, he left the tiny body out in the road, returning to the settlement, pulling the gate shut behind him. Then he broke the mechanism that opened and shut it, preventing the door from moving. It is no longer even safe for anyone. If he has been in and out, he may have brought it with him. May God forgive what I had to do. Many began to mutter, thinking what harm could a small child do? But Matthias glared at them all, and the muttering soon ended. They now existed on what grain had not been spoiled by the rats, and soon the village fell into a state of famine, under siege from an enemy they could not see, and could not fight. Through it all, Matthias burned with a fire that could not be quenched. As people complained that they needed to grow food, the cows needed sunlight and fresh grass. He told them that if they stepped outside the walls, they would not be allowed back in. Did you not hear the doctor? He spoke with utter madness. There is no cure for this malady, and there never shall be. I'm doing what I can to protect you from its effects, the wasting, the pain, the sheer horror. I alone among you all know what it has done, and beyond those walls I cannot protect you. That none of you are sick is a testament to my abilities, and if you do not believe me, then go. But know you send yourself to your death. 
But despite his words, Harold, after only a month in isolation, collapsed, dropping a load of grain to the ground. He'd complained of rats where he slept, but as many had been rat-bitten in the past, none found his complaints unusual, and he was unheeded. He moaned loudly as he was taken back to his home, and upon inspection, he had reddish blotches on his arms and chest, and his glands appeared swollen. The people ran to Matthias to explain what had happened, but he refused to believe it. None have come to our town. He cannot be sick. But when they insisted, he came to view Harold and witnessed the infection with his own eyes. He stayed with Harold for a few minutes alone. But when he emerged, he looked upon those who had called him with rage. You call this plague? He has nothing of the sort. It may look similar, but it cannot be. The devil and his minions have bewitched your eyes in tricks made to play on them. We are safe behind these walls, I tell you, and there is nothing that will change that. But Harold did grow worse, and despite Matthias' word, it did appear to be the plague. His legs and neck swelled, his fingers rotted, and soon he was dead as a stone. Matthias insisted that he be given a proper burial, including a service, but though he appeared in death almost the same as the soldier, Matthias would hear nothing of it. Why must you align our dear brother with the filth of the outside? He was not plague-ridden. That is out there. We are in here. How many times must I remind you of it? But he was not the only one in the village to suffer. The ones who tended to Harold were the first to take ill, but others in the village, starting near the granary, also became sick. Through it all, Matthias insisted that it was a trick that some devil was accursing their vision and making them believe what there was was not really what there was. When the population dwindled to Matthias and twelve healthy souls, that was when the knocking began at the gate. With no slit to see through and not enough footholds to see over the top of the wall, no one knew who knocked, but it began during sunset two weeks after the village fell ill. It started, simply enough, a quick rap, Barely noticeable, but it continued day and night, seemingly without end. It changed after Matthias limped up to the gate and rapped at it himself with his stick. Plague bearers and malcontents, you shall not harm my people, you hear me? The knock stopped, but only for a minute, then grew stronger, louder, more constant. Matthias, for the first time in years, fell back and appeared to be truly afraid. The knocking began to expand out, going from the gate to the walls, eventually surrounding the whole of the village. Still, when anyone tried to see through the gaps in the wood to who might be making it, all that could be made out were shapes, indistinct, slowly adding to the growing cacophony. No one could think of what was worse, the sickness within their walls, or whatever pounded on their walls day and night. Matthias had not been seen for a few days, having retreated into his house. While the knocking never stopped, it seemed to grow worse during the evening hours, making the gate rattle, unable to budge since it was broken, and a fine keening began to fill the air. The remaining healthy succumbed one by one, either from the disease, starvation, or by smashing their heads in against the wall, trying to drown out the noise and end the madness. 
Then there was but one villager remaining. Matthias stepped out of his home to see his people lying all around him. All appeared to be sleeping gently despite the noise. Matthias laughed, his fingers bleeding and raw from scratching at his walking stick, having driven deep grooves into it during his sleepless nights. Dusk was falling, and soon the noise would increase in volume once more. It was hard to see how much worse it could get with the gate constantly rattling as it was. You! You sought to take my people from me, but you failed. Look at them all here. I wish only the best for them. And look now how safe they are from you. I've kept them safe from your plagues, your wars, your famines. I offered them security, and they have it now. What shall you do to take them now? If it's me you want, then come. I'm ready to face you more than I have ever been before. And as the last rays of the sun fell from the horizon, the noise fell silent. Then, with one final terrific blow, the gate blasted inwards, knocked from its holders. Matthias watched, wondering if the sun had set, what was creating the dazzling light. Figures moved on the other side of the gate, but it was not men, not an army, not anything of this world. They were tall, almost the height of the walls that had kept them out for so long, and each of them glowed with radiant light. They carried nothing in their hands, but they were glorious clothing, shields and swords slung upon their backs. They were beautiful, but they glared at Matthias with a fire he had never seen. A literal fire as it was, as their eyes were the color of flame and their irises moved in a continuous dance. As it crouched on the ground away from them, they entered the village, moving like a river, bending down and scooping up the bodies of those who lay there. But when they stood, the bodies remained. Instead, in their arms, the figures held similar glowing bodies, restored to health and wellness, smiling brightly as they lay like babies within the figures' grasps. Matthias watched, too, as two others stood outside the gate, staring in. One held the form of a small child. The other held a young man wearing military garb. Beyond them, he saw other figures holding other glowing forms, but they were too far away to make out distinctly. As the last of the villagers were removed, the last figure turned once more looking at Matthias. It held up a finger, and one more shape came from the ground, that of Harold, properly buried unlike the rest, who moved wordlessly and silently, leaving the ground undisturbed, and who ran to the figure in an open embrace. With another flick of his finger, there was motion inside the walls. The decaying corpses of the villagers rose, sitting up, moving mechanically, stumbling, limping, approaching Matthias, then stopping, leaning over him as if awaiting an order from him what to do next. Matthias looked up at all of them, then at the figure, and then began to laugh his mind completely and utterly broken. He even continued to laugh as the gate, by some force, came back up in its proper spot, never to be reopened again.
I hope you enjoyed Poor Shepherd by author Seth Paul, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Paul. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash P-A-U-L. You might catch him on one of his occasional trips to social media or see some of his published works for stories that show off his taste of the offbeat. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave Seth a kind word and let him know you heard about him on this show and that Otis Jiry sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. As for... Matthias, I believe that village is still out there, not marked on any map, and not open to the public. But if you thought the pounding to get in sounded harsh, you should hear the sounds trying to get out. Now, if you fancy yourself a collector, you may want to steer clear of our second tale by Mr. Paul. In it, we have a working stiff hitting the end of his midlife crisis, wondering what's it all been about. But nostalgia is not always what it's cracked up to be. Without further ado, I present to you To Pass Us By. Hey, Derek, come here. Pliskin's got a new video. From his cubicle, Sean Bannister watched as Derek rolled his chair down the aisle to Jacob's desk, and even though the day was late, most of the senior staff had gone home, and there wasn't a whole lot going on. They were still trying to stay quiet, watching a video on Jacob's phone. He heard them trying to keep quiet, though, between the phone's tiny speaker and their constant snickering. They weren't doing a very good job. Hey, everyone, this is Wake Pliskin, and today I'm heading deep into Beyond the Forbidden to see if it's as scary as everyone has been telling me it is. Okay, it's opening the door of a mansion. Oh, a guy in a tailored suit is here, greeting me. He looks like the love child of a zombie in Vincent Price, but who cares, right? Gotta expect a few weirdos in an old abandoned mansion. But why is he taking care of an old abandoned mansion anyway? So, let's see, the kitchen is... Sean heard a faint roar and the guy in the video suddenly got over the top dramatic. What? Oh no, I heard something in the freezer. I shouldn't open that. I should probably just, oop, the door locked behind me and no windows. So I guess we'll have to, what is that? What is that? Oh, run, 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 run. Derek and Jacob started laughing themselves sick as the air filled with enough expletives to fill a Tarantino movie. He just sighed, looked at the spreadsheet he was working on, and then his eyes wandered around the cubicle. Above his desk was a shelf, and on the shelf was a variety of knickknacks. He'd listened to a self-help video not too long ago, telling him that the best way to encourage productivity and focus was to make sure you had reminders of the things you loved best. Among the knickknacks was a cup from when he saw Star Wars in the theater when he was only ten years old. Next to it, a little statue of Peter from Dawn of the Dead. 
The figure itself wasn't old, but it was the first movie he was too young to see in a theater. Never got a rating from the MPAA, so it had to be amazing. Turned out the reason he was scared of malls for years afterward. A signed picture of Kurt Russell, a foul ball, from the season the Tigers won the World Series, and finally the tipped-over picture frame. He stood it up again, and there was a picture of his little girl. She was six when the photo was taken in the early 90s. Christmas, sitting and smiling, while in front of a brand-new Super Nintendo system. That was the last time he had seen her. His wife, Mary, took them and left, leaving divorce papers for him to sign. The last Christmas gift to him. He didn't even know what to say. No ambition, no direction, no interest in us at all, she said in court. In the end, he hadn't even bothered to fight it. He'd felt so pathetic, so lost, that he had no defense. He didn't even have to pay child support because she didn't want it. She found a job several states over, and if he ever wanted to apologize for her ways, maybe he'd be able to talk to Christine again. But he didn't understand. He didn't know what he needed to apologize for. He thought everyone was happy. He thought everything was fine. But apparently, he just didn't see the writing on the wall and hadn't for a long time. He thought his life would change dramatically, but in the end, it didn't. He'd started as a file clerk in his company and had gotten promoted to account supervisor. But that was about where he stayed. He was comfortable enough. The salary wasn't crazy. But he could afford to keep up the apartment where Mary had left him, and he ate just fine. He'd come home from the office, watch TV, and then go to sleep. That happened on and off for the past, what, 30 years now? He'd become a fixture at his office, a smiling face, always eager to help, knowledgeable about stuff. That was Sean in a nutshell. He was now 50-something, and the most change in his life was the desktop he used. First, the company had tried its best to hold on to its aging Commodore 64s, but they eventually swapped to the IBMs, and he went through the 386, the 486, the Pentium, and now he stared at an LCD screen and a spreadsheet program. The keystrokes differed in the graphics, but the process still remained the same. He looked again at his shelf and collection, and then the sounds of his co-workers, new hires, kids, listening to their shows about guys playing video games. He remembered when the thrill was the high score, or enjoying a LAN party after hours in the office on Doom. Now they watched other people instead of doing it themselves. He never used to understand his parents and how they loved all that big band music, which never interested him in the slightest. He'd run over to an arcade cabinet with a stack of quarters while they sat a distance away, chuckling to themselves, but shaking their heads. Now he knew. He understood it all, exactly. He could tell Derek and Jacob that Wake Pliskin was a reference to Escape from New York. But would they care? The early 80s was ancient history to them, just like he couldn't understand what they saw in a moron in a headset babbling about a game. The world was passing him by. It wasn't long ago that he celebrated his 50th birthday. He was a dinosaur now. The promise of his youth was long gone. 
His dreams resided in the remembrances of a few objects he kept on the shelf. Preserved, just as they should be. Just like he should be. He checked his phone for the time. He sighed, punched his electronic timesheet, and shut off his monitor. He stood, groaning at his aching legs, and watched the sunset through the glass walls that made up the office building floor. The orange was fading, surrounded by dark, purpled clouds that showed a thunderstorm was coming. He was going to be driving right into it. He sighed once more, looking over to where the two were still huddled, oblivious to the world outside. Good night, guys. Be careful out there. A hand came out and waved, but it was followed by yelps as something must have come barreling out of a door somewhere in the game, armed with a chainsaw by the sounds of it. He shook his head and left them to their devices and went out to his car, alone, getting in just as the first patterns of rain hit the windshield. Sean had been driving for well over an hour now and was still far from his apartment or even a place to get a burger. Construction. Always construction. Even in the pouring rain. Why'd they have to keep ripping up the road and repaving it? Maybe if they did it right the first time, it wouldn't be like this. His book on CD ended and he ejected it, hearing the radio come on. Loveline died at home, surrounded by loved ones. A memorial will be held in his honor as prior students come to pay their respects to the teacher that meant so much to them, having retired a few years earlier. He shut off the radio. Loveline, that had been his 10th grade math teacher. God, the man must have been what, in his 80s? He always seemed old when Sean had been taking classes, though he was probably younger than Sean was now when he'd been taking his classes. They had never necessarily been friends, but he had always gotten along in those classes, and Mr. Loveline had praised him more than once on his work, thinking he'd be a great financial whiz someday if he applied himself. And look where he was now. Another pang of irredeemable loss. All his heroes were going. His mother told him he was named for Sean Connery, who was still in the part of James Bond when he was born. Now he was gone, too. Nothing was forever, not even diamonds. He saw the exit on the freeway coming up and nobody getting off of it. He knew it was nowhere near his normal exit, but at this point he didn't care. He couldn't take another minute of sitting in the pouring rain, hungry, tired, and miserable. He gunned the engine, pulled onto the shoulder, passed the yellow pickup that honked at him, and got into the turnoff lane. He wasn't familiar with this part of town, but he found a Wendy's quickly enough, and one drive through spicy chicken sandwich later, put his address into his phone to GPS the best way there. It wouldn't work. It wasn't unusual, especially in this weather, for it to sit there and blink at him like it was, but at least he could shut off the routing system and navigate with the built-in map. But even the map wasn't working properly either. It just showed an arrow in the middle of nothing. That couldn't be right because he was traveling on the road right now. He slowed down and tried to find some road signs, but even as unfamiliar as he was with the area, he knew something wasn't right. He appeared to be driving along a back road somewhere in farm country. But there were no farms as close to the freeway this far south. He was sure of it. 
After a few more minutes and no other side streets to pass, yet another oddity. He turned around and headed back toward the freeway. Even if he were stuck in traffic, at least he'd be able to find his way home. He started to get concerned after driving for another half an hour, and no sign of the freeway emerged. He knew he couldn't have missed it. Hell, he definitely couldn't have missed the Wendy's either. Just this one road, with the farmland visible past scrub brush and small stunted trees, the thunder and lightning making it seem much emptier than it probably was. He stopped the car, rechecked his GPS. Still blinking, no roads visible anywhere. Confused, he drove on once more, keeping an eye out for anything resembling a landmark, anything that could get him back to the suburban areas he knew so well. The pattern of the rain was beginning to drive him nuts. He turned on the radio. Instead of a station, all he heard was the wavy static of a million out-of-range stations, occasionally catching a word here and there. With the car still going and not seeing a soul on the road beside him anywhere, he ducked down to look for a CD from his wallet to slide in. He had podcasts on his phone, sure, but he loved having something in his hands. It made everything more real that way. As he dug through, finally coming across helmets, meantime, he was struck with another hit of nostalgia. All these bands he used to listen to, rocking out in the car with his friends. Now, as he held the CD in his hand, he thought of those memories and realized how his life had turned out. Spreadsheets, divorce, mid-fifties, and nothing to show for it except a collection of old music and movie memorabilia. He shut his eyes and thought long and hard about a life not worth living, having ended back at that Christmas. To be back there again and have everything the way it was. But that couldn't happen. Not now. He opened his eyes to a screeching sound. The CD flew out of his hand and bounced under the passenger seat as the car came to a stop. He thumped his head on the steering wheel, but only mildly. Groaning, he looked ahead and saw he had drifted to the side. His car had somehow found the only thing that existed on this stretch of road, an abutment that, though it probably screwed up the paint on his car, kept him from plunging into a roaring river a few yards ahead. His headlights, through the rain, picked up a bridge spanning the river and what appeared to be some sort of building on the other side, just at the edge of the light. He wondered a lot of things. First, how something as obvious and significant as this bridge, the river, and the building could have popped up so quickly without him noticing, though he chalked that up to the rain. Secondly, why it seemed to be so difficult to find his way back to the freeway. And finally, what river was this? It wasn't as wide and grand as, say, the Mississippi. Still, it was more than a basic trickle, and it didn't seem like the weather should have made it as fast-flowing and turbulent as it looked. And no river that fast-flowing was familiar to him at all. He tried to back his car up, but as he did so, he heard an awful ratcheting noise, and after getting out to look at the car, found the front bumper had gotten lodged between the guardrail and the concrete. If he kept pulling, he'd rip the entire front end off of his car. He sighed, went back to the car, and reached in to grab his phone from the dashboard holder. It wasn't there. 
He dug underneath the seat, seeing if it maybe had gotten lodged there along with the CD. But he came up empty. He tried to dial out using the display in his car, but it claimed there was no connection to the unit. He checked the ground outside, but if it had fallen out of the car, he'd never find it in this weather. Even if he could somehow turn his headlights around at the ground below, the rain-soaked road was now growing puddles and would need him to dig around and search on his hands and knees. Besides, if it had fallen into a puddle that deep, it'd be done for anyway. Considering even his car couldn't find it, he had to expect the worst. He got back in the car and shut off the engine. It may have been wet, but it wasn't too cold, and sooner or later, somebody would be bound to see him. Even most trail roads had to have somebody come by. Nobody would have made the road otherwise. But no other cars came. He checked his car's clock occasionally, and when it finally reached ten... With the rain still pelting down and not wanting to risk his battery anymore, decided that maybe that building across the bridge might be worth seeing. Even if it was just a warehouse, he was sure, considering the weather, that if security showed up, they'd be able to help him. Hell, even if he was arrested, it would be something better than sitting in his broken-down car. At least, it meant he had somebody to explain things to. Turning his car off, he tried to make it over to the bridge before his headlights cut out, as there didn't seem to be any street lamps anywhere. He made it three-quarters of the way, and then he walked on in the darkness, trying not to think about the rushing rivers beneath his feet, keeping the sound behind him. Still, his mind played tricks on him, not used to being out in unfamiliar territory, soaking wet, unable to even use starlight to help him. Then... He was nearly blinded. There was a loud pop as electricity crackled in the air, and some sparks and the building ahead of him beamed light for a moment before flickering and then calming to a normal level of intensity. It was a hotel. Out here in the middle of nowhere, a three-story, fairly modern hotel. A few assorted cars in the parking lot and glass double doors led into what seemed a nice and well-kept lobby. Why it wasn't lit up before became slightly more transparent when Sean saw a figure wearing a plastic poncho emerged from a shed off to one side of the parking lot, which itself was surrounded by a tall fence and electrical warning signs. The figure walked out of the gate, squeezed a padlock shut, then walked back across the lot to the front door. Now, nearer to the door, if they were normal-sized... Then Sean reasoned the figure had to be close to seven feet tall. The figure, still wearing the dripping poncho, held the door open, and at that moment, Sean realized the figure was holding the door for him. He raced as quickly as he could across the sopping parking lot and in through the door. It was more running than Sean had done in a while, and he tried to thank the figure as he drew in several long breaths and put his hands on his knees. He knew he wasn't in great shape, but he never guessed just how little running would have winded him so much until then. Sorry about the lights. We don't get much help coming out this way, especially in this weather. I usually end up doing everything myself. The figure removed the poncho and flung it onto a coat hook alongside the lobby door, the movement reminding Sean of a stage magician and its fluidity and grace. Now visible, the figure, a lanky man with longish graying hair, in a pressed suit, 
went behind the counter, steepled his fingers, and sat down. In his seat, his great height was drastically reduced, but his presence no less imposing. Thankfully, it was a fix that didn't need a world-grade electrician, and luckily I got them on before you fell and broke something important. Sean blinked a few times and, still recovering his breath, looked around the lobby. The interior consisted of marble walls and floors, alternating between the traditional white and black with a pinkish color. Two brown chairs faced a television that was turned off. But the television itself was old. It was older than even he was, clearly a product from the mid-50s, with the oval screen barely visible in the middle of the wood and fabric-covered box. Yet despite its apparent age and design, it didn't seem out of place. Though Sean knew his family had a TV just like that, which broke before he was born, and his dad had kept it out in the garage in the vain hope of repairing it someday to avoid having to buy a new one. Common sense and the pace of technology eventually won out. Well, that and that the TV cabinet had a record player and a radio in it, making it weigh as much as a grown man. It stayed in the garage under a pile of rags for a long time before his dad finally spent a day lugging it out to the curb. He ripped a few tenons in his hand during the move, but he did get it out there. Another memory of better times. Dad had been gone for almost a decade now, a victim of a car accident. Mom hadn't been the same after that, when she hit her head on the stove a few years later and had to go off to a nursing home. She barely remembered him now. Even beyond selling the house, the worst, the absolute worst, had been going through all her possessions and photo books and memories. What he couldn't bear to sell, he kept in a storage unit. Maybe someday he'd be able to go through that and make wiser choices. But then, he barely had the guts to go see her. And one day, he got the phone call saying she was gone too. Out of the blue, just like that. He hadn't had the chance to say goodbye to either of them. Sir, is everything all right? Perhaps I was wrong about you not having hurt yourself. Sean suddenly realized the man behind the counter had been speaking to him while he'd been lost in thought. I'm sorry, it's just been a very hard day for me. Some days generally are, but I'm correct that you walked all the way here because you're having car issues? Yeah, yeah. Sean rubbed the back of his head, trying to get his mind back to the present. I just need to see if I can contact a tow. I have AAA, but I can't figure out where my phone went off to. Not a problem, sir. Unfortunately, we don't have a phone out here in the lobby for visitor use. But if you have your card, I'd be more than happy to go to our landline in the back and contact them for you. The man gave a warm but tired small as if this was something that happened often. Sean got out his card and handed it over. No cell phones or lobby phones? That was a little strange in this day and age. Keeping up with the times can be harder than you'd think. We make do with what we have. One moment. Sean watched him go into a room behind the counter and heard, of all things, a rotary dial being spun. A moment later, the door closed and he could hear a muffled conversation taking place. He strolled back and forth in the lobby, not wanting to go too far, but he could see a small dining area for continental breakfasts, as well as a hallway leading to first-floor rooms, and, if the sign was correct, 
a pool and weight room. Glancing down the hall, he saw a red-carpeted floor leading down a hallway lined with red doors, all lit with a soft yellowish glow. For some reason, it looked like the hallway was a lot longer than could fit in the building, but it just must have been the night messing with him. Sir, the man at the front desk had returned, handing his card back. Unfortunately, due to the weather and our somewhat remote location, a tow truck will not be available until the morning. I deeply apologize for the inconvenience, sir. I'd be more than happy to arrange a room for you, complimentary to alleviate any issues. Until the morning. Pain in the neck. But he'd already had dinner, and besides, what was he in such a rush to go home to? An empty apartment? Maybe an evening away from those same walls would do him good. Sure, sounds great. I appreciate it. I sincerely hope you will, sir. You're not the first person who's gotten caught up in bad weather, I assure you. It's not a problem to help. Sean looked around for his computer to get his information entered, but realized there wasn't one. The only thing was a leather-bound book on a stand, a ballpoint pen next to it, open to a page for name, entry, and date. He signed it, and in his haste suddenly noticed the previous signature. It was dated two months ago. How does a hotel stay open if no one has signed in for two months? Do you need my license or any other info? Uh, You may leave your ID here to pick up in the morning when you leave. It's all the collateral I need. Still confused and a little put off, Sean slid his driver's license out of his wallet. The man regarded it, got an envelope from a desk drawer, and placed the license inside with a small yellow tab attached which appeared to be for reference. He then reached into another drawer and rummaged through it, clinking and clattering. Room keys. Sean looked at the drawer and nearly gasped. Not the key cards he'd become used to, but honest-to-God keys with little number fobs on them. The drawer was literally full of them. Maybe he hadn't been wrong when he thought that hallway seemed a little long. The man returned with one labeled... 141767. Here you are. On the first floor, follow the hallway around when it curves to the right. It'll come on you more quickly than you might think. If you have any questions or concerns, dial number 67 on the yellow phone. Sean thanked him, finding the man cordial, with the situation growing stranger by the minute. Why such a high number on a room key? It didn't make any sense. Yet the man was right. Getting to the right turn took nearly forever, but the room was almost immediately on his left when he did. He put the key in the lock and turned it. He pushed the door open, ready to throw his jacket on a chair and watch some TV. He'd only just closed the door behind him when he heard a noise come from deeper in the room, and when he looked to see where it had come from, he dropped the key to the floor in astonishment. His daughter, just as she was back on that Christmas, unwrapping her Super Nintendo. Six years old, hair up in little pigtails, wearing her little mermaid pajamas, the tree in the corner of their old house. No hotel bed, no hotel amenities, no hotel even. It was their house, their old house. And a quick look back at the door confirmed that the door that he'd come through was now the hall that led to their front door. His wife, smiling with delight at Christine, 
a mug of coffee in hand, sitting in the armchair looking as beautiful as the day they married. The window, looking out at the snow-covered backyard, still dark out, as Christine had woken both of them up at 6 a.m., only a few hours after they'd prepared everything the night before. She looked up at him, her freckled face overjoyed. Oh, Dad, see what Santa brang? Brang, not brought. He felt his lip quivering, tears fighting to emerge. It was the last day, the last perfect day. He ran over and gave her a big hug, and he felt her tiny arms wrap around him. It was a warm, loving embrace. And then he looked at his wife. She stood up from the armchair. Well, I think it's time I got some breakfast started. Who wants bacon? Christine gave one last squeeze before racing to the kitchen to see if she could help cook. The last perfect day before everything was over. He looked in the mirror hanging on the wall next to the tree, and he saw himself as he looked that day. He was in his mid-twenties, having not shaven the night before, wearing his Motley Crew t-shirt and some flannel pants, his hair longish but not unkempt. It wasn't how he was, but how he remembered himself to be. Was it... was it a chance to start again? He moved into the kitchen and just gazed at them as they worked in the kitchen together, making Christmas breakfast. There were cookies in the refrigerator. Christine would sneak one of them in a few minutes, but it didn't matter on that day. He reached for them to tell them how much he loved them and that everything would be better from here on out. But then he saw his hand. His hand outside of the mirror were still those of a man in his mid-fifties. He looked down at himself and saw his rumpled work shirt, trying desperately to stay buttoned over his expanding middle. Reality broke through. He saw his wife looking at his daughter as they cracked eggs and huddled around the stove. No, not the last perfect day. Already in her mind, she'd been plotting to leave, giving him just this one last Christmas together before she'd leave, Christine in tow. He stepped back, saying nothing. At that moment, no longer were they the flesh-and-blood people he'd seen when he walked in, but some sort of two-dimensional image, a fake, a fraud, fragments of a memory. He looked around for the hotel door, but didn't see it, just the frame of the movie set, or whatever it was, that looked like their old house. He began to panic until he remembered the man's words at the counter. A yellow phone. But what was the number to call? He felt his panic rising again until he saw the keys, almost buried in the brown carpet on the floor. He snatched them up, going to the front hallway where they used to keep their phone. Where was the yellow corded phone on the wall? It had to be the one. He picked up the receiver, hearing the dial tone, hoping it would jog his memory. It was pound something. Pound what? He looked at the keys and noticed what he had missed the first time. His birth date. He typed, pound 67. Front desk. Uh, this is, this is room. Uh, Mr. Bannister, yes, you had a question? I... He swallowed, hearing the happy sounds from the kitchen. I can't take this room for the night. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Please, look to your right. Hanging up the phone, Sean looked to his right and there, almost like it had been placed there by somebody 
just dropping it in their house, the hotel door and the surrounding panel work around the doorway were visible. He opened it and stepped out into the hallway. Sean looked up and down the hallway. The door next to his read, 1111439. Sean moved toward the door and pounded on it, trying to see if maybe he had just temporarily lost his mind, and everything would be okay. There was a rustle behind it, and a woman, dressed in a polka dot dress in what Sean remembered his mother calling a victory royal hairstyle. Uh, yes, sir. Can I help you? If you're collecting for the war effort, you do remember it ended last year, right? Mama, who's there? Sean's face turned white as he looked into the room and saw a man, well into his 80s, turn around in a chair at a kitchen table. A mirror hung behind him, and in it, Sean saw a boy, probably no older than six or seven. Sean gulped and tried to compose himself. I'm... I'm sorry, ma'am. I believe I've made a mistake. With a sigh, the woman shut the door. Are you okay, Mr. Bannister? Sean turned and surprised, and slammed his back against the door, still reeling, with a tightness in his chest from what he had just seen. It was the man from the front counter, somehow appearing there without making any noise. The man didn't seem upset, or considering what he had just witnessed, demonic or filled with evil thought. He appeared genuinely concerned, and that, more than anything, threw Sean out of sorts even more. What? What's going on? What did I see? Why were my wife and daughter in my room? Why was that man a little boy in the mirror? What is this place? The man looked at the number on the door behind Sean and nodded. Mr. Clintworth was six the day he went for his first day of school, having had to work on the family farm to keep things going. His father would meet him at school, having finally returned from the reconstruction effort in Europe. However, they would die young, and despite steady work in the automotive fields, he never achieved the greatness he thought he would. For him, this was his favorite day. His favorite day. I asked you, what is this place? The man smiled. It's a place where a moment of happiness is caught, a fleeting thing and given as a gift forever. Forever? Sean looked at the door and its plaque. But they'll die. It, it can't be forever. It's a memory, Mr. Bannister. It's frozen in place. Those who want it badly enough will never die. Sean slid away from the door, keeping his eye on the man the whole time as he moved down the hallway. He passed by more doors, the numbers glancing by as he watched. One, one, two, two, five, five, six. One, zero, five, one, nine, seventy, nine. One, zero, six, one, three, sixty, three. He stopped. The dash in the last one. Why was that there? But then, as he waited, he heard something filter under the door. It sounded like a musical instrument, like a violin. No, too light and fast. A fiddle. He listened closely. It sounded a lot like the Battle Hymn of the Republic. It then stopped. Play it again, Father. Play it. The voice that came from under that door, he would have never heard it if he wasn't paying attention. But its guttural, dry, decayed sound 
There was a voice older than anyone had a right to be. They are forever frozen in time. No, the memory was frozen in time. He turned, running back down the hall, but the hallway seemed to continue on eternally. No turnoff back to the lobby. Red doors led everywhere. He turned, but the way back was the same. He turned once more, and there was the man. Are you sure you do not wish to stay, Mr. Bannister? Sean gasped, falling to the floor. No, let me out of here. Then follow me, sir. We are nothing if not courteous. We are in the service industry, after all. The man walked down the hall and turned left, almost seemingly into the blank wall. Sean pulled himself up and went to the spot and found the wallpaper was designed in a way that fooled the eye, an optical illusion that hid the way back to the front entrance. Or at least that's how it appeared now. Back at the desk, the man waited as Sean cautiously came over. He waved to the guest book. Sean took one look at it and the pen next to it. He ignored the pen and ripped his name out of the book. The man didn't even bat an eye. I apologize, sir, but you had to come here this evening. It was thought you needed lodging, but perhaps you were less interested than previously believed. Sean held the ball of crumpled paper in his hand. How, how can you live with yourself? How can you keep them all here? The man leaned forward, steepling his fingers, and gave Sean a sad smile. Who said I'm the owner here? Sean backed away from the desk, the man keeping the tired, almost pitiable expression in his view, feeling for the door behind him. He kept the man's face in view until he missed one of the steps, slipping on the wet concrete and falling backward. He hit the parking lot hard on the flat of his back, but the only pain he registered was a twisted ankle. Standing up, he looked back over to where his car sat, still stuck on the bridge abutment. It was only a vague shape in the dark, out beyond the edge of the hotel lights. Maybe it was stuck, but anything was better than here. Limping on his injured foot, he moved as quickly as he could through the pouring rain, away from whatever it was that he had left behind. He left the ring of light and fell into complete darkness, hopping toward the sound of the raging river, following the road back to the bridge, hoping that he didn't miss it in the dark and plunge into the water below. He slipped once more, his face clanging on the metal grating of the bridge, hearing the water rush by underneath. He felt a rising panic now, not quite sure why, but he felt now like he needed to hurry, that if he didn't move, all this would be for nothing. Even though his out-of-shape body fought him the whole way, he got to his feet and clanged on the metal, reaching out for where he knew his car had to be. His hand nearly plowed in his windshield. Feeling forward, he grabbed the driver's side door handle and pulled it open. Out of the rain, with the interior lights on now, he slammed the door shut, looking out as the rain streamed over the glass. For a moment, he thought he saw something move in the dark, but what it may have been, he didn't look harder to see. He looked down to see where his keys were. As he looked, the interior lights dimmed, but after a moment, he realized he was still able to see, and quite well. He looked up. Outside, the world had changed. 
The man was no longer anywhere near a stream or bridge, for that matter. It was morning, and sunlight was coming into his car. Very early morning sunlight at that. He opened his car door, thinking maybe it was some sort of trick. But no, he was on some side industrial road, going past some buildings that clearly had not been used in some time. He heard the slight buzz of traffic on the freeway a short distance away. His car had pulled up slightly onto the curb, like he'd drifted to the side after falling asleep at the wheel. Had that been what he'd done? He winced as he moved his leg, his twisted ankle still hurting. He'd never been on this road before, and would never dream of pulling off here for any reason. Whatever it was he'd seen, it could not have been a simple dream. But whatever it was, it had vanished along with the night. He didn't feel tired, though. That was a concern. He started the car and checked the time on the dashboard. It was only then he noticed his phone back up in its little holster, as if it had never left. He typed in his workplace. He'd arrive in plenty of time if he left now. That day, Sean had gotten several looks from his office mates, partly because he was in the same clothes as yesterday, but his boss also complimented him by the way he'd completed this week's spreadsheet so quickly. Sean surprised him again by saying that, even though he was a little late in asking if it would be possible to move into a management position, something with potential mentoring capabilities. Once, during his lunch, he went into a corner and dialed up a number on his phone. He spent the better part of his break talking with someone, almost excitedly. After he finished, he grabbed the picture on his desk and stood it up. Just as he was leaving for the day, he stopped at Jacob's cubicle where Derek was just about to come in to watch another video. Inside were Star Wars glass, a statue from Dawn of the Dead, and a couple other things. Not the foul ball, though. He was going to see what he could get for it from an auction. They were surprised when he offered them a plastic bag and asked if there was anything they wanted since they seemed like collectors. They smiled and eagerly picked over the stuff. Thanks, Mr. Bannister. It's okay, I know I haven't talked to you guys a whole lot, so I'm not embarrassed, but I figured this stuff will mean a lot more to you than it does to me now. Derek held the signed Kurt Russell picture and beamed. This is awesome. Ever see Escape from New York? I know it's old, but I love those old 80s movies. But why? You're not going to go, like jump off a bridge or anything, are you? Or hotlines, you can call. No, Derek, quite the opposite. I just... Sean stopped thinking of just the right phrase for the moment, but nothing wise came to him. And at that, he just smiled, wished them well, and stepped out of the office to his car, not wanting to wait another minute to see what lay ahead. I hope you enjoyed Passes By, by author Seth Paul, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Paul. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash P-A-U-L. You can follow him on social media, 
with updates once every century, but there are other tales of the weird that you might also find interesting. As a reminder, if you decide to give any of this talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. And be sure to let them know you heard about them on this program and that Otis Jiry sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm pretty sure Seth would much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me on this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark, the season-ending episode of Season 8. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube... You can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at Otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S 
at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Ha <laughs> ha